would take out your Bibles with me now, please, and let's open them up to the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, Gospel of John, chapter 1. I will ask that you bear with me this morning. My own throat is a little scratchy, and uh, so hopefully I won't cough too much here. Um, But I want us to look at the Gospel of John, chapter 1, and we're going to read again verses 1 through 5, and then verse 14. 1 through 5, and then verse 14. Here is what we read. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Then verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. One of the great gifts that God has given to us as human beings is the capacity to name things. Uh, We remember how Adam gave names to all of the animals in the Garden of Eden. Adam did not fully understand everything about these animals. He did not know how the various animals behaved or how they reproduced or how their internal systems worked. I think we can assume Adam did not have a full grasp of microbiology or physiological chemistry. These animals, in many ways, were mysteries to him, but they were also incredible examples of God's handiwork, and Adam was able to give them names. Well, ever since then, we as human beings have given names to things we don't fully understand. For example... Astrophysicists and cosmologists are convinced that 70% of this universe is made up of a kind of energy that we don't understand and we can't even yet prove exists. Uh, We don't know anything about this energy. We just know that many of the things that we have figured out about this universe fall apart if this energy doesn't exist. It's a mystery. We don't know anything about it except that it must be there. We can't explain it, but we can name it. And so you will hear physicists and cosmologists talk about something called dark energy. What about the other 30% of the universe? Well, they tell us that everything we see, including everything on this planet and then everything we can see is as far as galaxies, as far as planets, as far as moons and asteroids and things of that sort, all of that makes up 5% of the universe. The other 25% is made up of a kind of matter that astrophysicists are quite sure exist, but they cannot detect it. This is a kind of matter that is invisible. It does not bend light when light touches it. It isn't antimatter, but a real kind of matter that makes up a huge portion of our universe, and we don't know what it is. It is completely mysterious to us, but we've given it a name. Dark matter. 
And so according to astrophysicists, 95% of our universe is made up of things we don't understand. 70% we call dark energy. 25% we call dark matter. But we don't know what it is. But we're good at naming mysteries. We're good at giving labels to things we don't yet understand. Well, when it comes to the greatest truths of all, the truths about God, we often find ourselves giving names and labels to things that are very mysterious to us. For example, we know that there is only one God, and we know that this God is three persons, and we know that each of these three persons is fully God. Now, how that works is beyond our comprehension. That is, that is mysterious doctrine to us, but we have a name for it, the Trinity. Well, right now, in these recent days, we as a church have been learning about this incredible reality that the Word became flesh. The second person of the Godhead became a man. This is mysterious to us. There's a lot about this that we will never comprehend, at least in this life. We use the word incarnation to describe this mystery. And then, as we think about this remarkable fact, that Jesus now has two natures, a divine nature as fully God, a human nature as fully man, and yet He is one person and not two people, and somehow these fully God and fully man are harmoniously joined together without being intermingled in any way. When we start talking about these things, we are in the deep end of the pool. We are, we are over our head in mystery. And yet we have a label. We have a title. And so uh, I'm going to tell you what theologians have called this unique mystery of Christ uh, in a few minutes. But first, let me give you four truths to unpack this mystery, and then I'll give you the name for it. So here are the four truths of the mystery itself. Number one, Christ is one person. Christ is one person. Nowhere in all of scriptures do we see Christ spoken of as two persons. We are not to think of the second person of the Trinity as being a Trinity in himself. As if we can separate Jesus into, well, he's Jesus over here, and he's Christ over here, and he's Lord over here, and somehow these three persons come together. No, no, no. Jesus is only one person. So that whatever Jesus does, Jesus does. The Bible never speaks of Jesus in the plural. He is one person. And yet, truth number two, Christ has two natures. Before he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, Jesus had only one nature, his divine nature. Now, after Christmas, he has two. His divine nature, fully God, his human nature, fully man. As God, he has no limitations. Jesus is eternal. Jesus is omniscient. Jesus is omnipotent. Jesus is omnipresent. There is no time where He is not. No reality, real or hypothetical, that He does not know. There is no limit to His ability. There is no place where He is not. Jesus has no limitations as God. But the Bible promised that the Messiah would also be a man. 
Jesus is clearly called a man in many passages of Scripture. He had the consciousness of a man. He regularly referred to himself as a man. In fact, Jesus' favorite title for himself was Son of Man. He calls himself that 80 times in the Gospels. Jesus had the appearance of a man, so that if you and I saw him on the street, we would not think of him as being anything other than a man. He had the body of a man. There were some people later in church history who believed that Jesus was a phantom, that he was a ghost, that he appeared as one who had the illusion of a body, but it was not a real body. In fact, your hand could, could pass right through him. And yet, Hebrews 10.5 and numerous other passages make clear Jesus' body was a tangible, physical, fleshly body just like yours and mine. John says in 1 John 1 that he is writing about the Word, the second person of the Trinity. And he says that this Word is that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which we have touched with our own hands. In other words, the disciples were able to shake Jesus' hands, to hug him, to feel his breath on their face. He was no phantom. He was a real person with a real body like yours and mine, and he still has that body. As God, unlimited everywhere. As man, he is limited like you and me to the confines of a real human body. Jesus has the soul of a man. When Jesus took on flesh, he took on everything that a true man is, including a human soul. Much of the suffering that Jesus endured on the cross was a suffering of the soul, a suffering of the soul that far surpassed the suffering of his body. Moreover, the fact that Jesus died proves that he had a human soul for what is death but the separation of a human soul from a human body. Jesus said on the cross, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit, referring to that human soul. Jesus knew what it was to desire as a man. He knew what it was to have desires met and desires frustrated. He knew what it was to rejoice and he knew what it was to grieve, to be praised and to be persecuted. And he knew all of these things in a real human way, just as you and I have known them. Now, some in the past have believed that Jesus' body was that of a man, but that his mind and his heart were simply those of God. As if his, what Jesus was was a divine nature inside a human body. But that is not the case. Jesus had a real human mind with a real human heart, a real human will, and he still does this very moment. He has not lost anything that he is as God, but he has gained everything that you are as a human being, everything that makes you human, he now is. The creator has added to himself creatureliness. He has become one of his own creation. Truth number three. These two natures, divine and human, are united together in perfect harmony. Fullness of deity, fullness of humanity, joined together in perfect harmony. So do not think of Jesus as having a split personality disorder. Do not think of Jesus as half God, half man. 
Right? You got the circle of Jesus, and you, you put a line down the middle. Well, he's half God and half man. No, he is fully God and fully man. He's not three fourths God and one fourths man. He's not three fourths man and one fourths God. He is one hundred percent God and one hundred percent man, all at the same time, with no divinity, uh, with no disunity, no division in himself. This is, by the way, as mind-boggling as the Trinity. Right? The Trinity is mind-boggling. The very nature of Jesus Christ after the Incarnation is now mind-boggling. Jesus is one person who knows what it is to experience thirst as a human being and knows what it is to never thirst as God. He experiences thirst and an utter lack of thirst at the same time in one being. Jesus told His disciples He did not know the day of his return. That was absolutely true of the man Jesus Christ. Jesus in his human nature did not know the day and the hour that he would return to the earth. Jesus as God in his divine nature did know. Jesus both knew and did not know at the same time in one person with perfect harmony. Explain that to me. Really, explain that to me. Right? It's mind-boggling. The, the mysteries of what has happened in Christ are, are marvelous. Number four, truth number four. The two natures of Christ are not mingled together in any way. The two natures of Christ are not mingled together in any way. So they're united together. They're, they're harmoniously existing together in one person, but they are not intermingled. So think about marriage. Just as a husband and a wife become one, yet remain distinct, just as Christ and His church are now one, but still distinct, so Christ's godness and Christ's manness are now one, and yet distinct. The difference is a husband and wife remain two different people. Jesus is one person with two distinct yet joined natures. Christ's divinity never enters into His humanity. Christ's humanity never enters into His divinity. Uh, so, what about all of these miracles Jesus performed when He was on the earth as a man? Right? You have Jesus coming up to Philip, and He says to Philip, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Philip's thinking, you were nowhere near. How, how did you know I was sitting under a fig tree? What, what, what is that? Right? How, how did Jesus do that? How do we explain the supernatural acts of the man Christ Jesus on earth? Well, here's the answer. Everything that Jesus did in His humanity, He did as a true man, just like you and me, relying on the Holy Spirit. Before His incarnation, as God, the Holy Spirit submitted to Christ. And the Holy Spirit still submits to Christ. And so Christ says to the Spirit, Spirit, do this, and the Spirit does it. But when Jesus became a man in His humanity, He put Himself under the Holy Spirit so that He was just like you and me in His life. He, he did not have special... He was not Superman, right? When we say Jesus became a man, we don't mean He became Superman. We mean He became a man like you with all of your limitations. And yet, He performed these supernatural, miraculous acts through dependence on the Holy Spirit of God. 
being led by the Spirit, being carried by the Spirit, right? Mark uses that language again and again of Jesus being carried along by the Holy Spirit of God. Remember the great messianic promise of Isaiah 61, right? So you have Jesus, he's come as a man, he's at the beginning of his ministry, he walks into the synagogue in Nazareth, he opens up the scroll to Isaiah 61, and he reads this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me. Anointed him with what? Anointed him with the Holy Spirit, to proclaim good news to the poor, He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In other words, Jesus makes clear that all that he is doing as the Messiah, as a real man born of the lineage of David, he he does under the influence and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. So, Here is what we can say. Now, we're we're in the deep end here. I know that. But here is what we can say about John 1.14. The Word became flesh. We can say Christ is one person with two natures united together and yet not intermingled. Mount Hermon Missionary Baptist Church, it took several centuries of great division, discussion, prayer, Bible study for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to come to believe those things. There were huge battles in the first 500 years of the church over what kind of person is Jesus Christ. We are the recipients. We we have the grace of having now received the end of that discussion. We have the answer. Christ, one person, two natures, united, not intermingled. What is the name that we've given to this mystery? What is the label? Here it is, hypostatic union. So everybody say, hypostatic union. All right, see, you've all become great theologians today, right? You've learned, now, now, now over Christmas, you're going to be with your family and friends, impress them, right? right? We're celebrating the hypostatic union today. How about you? What? Right? Impress them with that knowledge. The word hypostatic comes from a Greek word. It's used four times in the New Testament. Right? So it's not just some theologian's word. It's an actual Greek word used in the Bible. Hebrews 1.3, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And that word nature is the Greek word hypostasis. The hypostatic union is the reality of the union of the two natures of Christ in one person so that they do not lose anything in and of themselves. They're united but not intermingled. Now, we ought to stand. Excuse me. <coughs> excuse me. We ought to stand in awe <coughs> of this mystery: infinite God, finite man, united in Jesus Christ. Think about this: Almighty God, human frailty, at the same time in one person, coexisting together; Creator and creature uniting together in one person; Sustainer and the One sustained united together in one person. Jesus is all of that. Now, where do we get all this from the Bible? Where do we see this actually taught? As what, first, as what John 1.14 means. Well, I want to show you where we get this doctrine very briefly and then close with the implication. So basically we get it from three kinds of passages. Okay, this doctrine is taught in three kinds of passages. Number one, 
There are those passages that speak of Christ which are only true of His divine nature. There are certain passages in the Bible that speak of the Lord Jesus Christ which can only be true of Jesus as God, not as man, just as God. That's why we know they can't be intermingled. So, for example, John 8, 58. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Okay. In other words, I am outside of time. I am in all times, all at one time. Jesus, as a human being, cannot say that. Jesus, in His human nature, is now just like you and me. He lives in a consecutive moment of time. Right? Every second passing. Jesus has brought himself into time as a human being. Right? But as God, in his divine nature, he is completely outside of time. He is the creator of time. Time is, is underneath him. And so he is able to say, before Abraham was, not I was, before Abraham was, I am. Right? It can only be true of Jesus as God, not as man. Okay? Um, Many other verses like this. We saw some of these last week, right? When Jesus created the world, Jesus sustaining the world, Jesus sharing the glory with his Father before the foundations of the world. These are all verses that speak of Jesus only in his godness and cannot be true of him in his humanity. So that's number one. Number two is this. There are those passages that speak of Christ which can only be true of his humanity. In other words, there's some verses that speak of Jesus that can only be true of him as God, period. And then there's a whole other class of verses that can only be true of Jesus as a man, not God. Right? With, with, it, distinct from being God, just as man. So, and, and by the way, these are verses that have caused Christians lots of troubles over the years. They, they, they've, they've scratched their heads and said, I, 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 don't, I don't get that verse, right? So, for example, well, give me some easy ones first. Let me give you some easy ones that show this can only be true of Jesus as man, not God. Jesus, on the cross, he says, I thirst. Can God thirst? Can God have any lack or need of anything? No. So that can only be true of Jesus as a man. I thirst. We read of Jesus being sorrowful unto death. Right? He's in the garden of Gethsemane, right? sweat like blood. He's sorrowful unto death. Can God die? Does death have any meaning for God? No. Only as a man could Jesus experience a sorrow unto death. Um, we are told that Jesus Christ purchased the church by his own blood. Does God have blood? God is a spirit. He does not have a body like men. Right? So purchase the church by his own blood can only be true of Jesus as man. It cannot be true of Jesus as God. So now some of these tricky verses that people wrestle with. Luke 2.40. We read that Jesus as a child was growing and becoming strong and was being filled with wisdom. Jesus was learning and growing in wisdom. Folks, can God grow in wisdom? Is there any wisdom that God does not have today that He can have tomorrow? Right? So when we read that, we're reading something that can only be true of Jesus as a man. Right? Or the passage I mentioned earlier, right? Jesus looked at His disciples and He says, Even the Son of Man... 
does not know the day and hour of his return. Jesus, you're God. Of course you know when you're coming back. The Son of Man does not know the day and hour. It's only true of Jesus as man. And so we have this, this whole group of verses over here that can only be true of Jesus as God. And then we have this whole group of verses over here that can only be true of Jesus as man. And then third, we have those passages that speak of Christ that can only be true if he is both. They can only be true if he is both. Many of the verses that speak about redemption fall into this category. It is because Jesus is God and man. He can be redeemer and savior. In his offices as our prophet, as our priest, as our king, none of those make sense if he is not both God and man. Right? So as prophet, Jesus speaks to us. As a prophet, he speaks us into truth. How does he do it? Well, he does it as a man, as one who experienced temptation like we have, one who can sympathize with our weaknesses, one who has been in our shoes and experienced all kinds of temptation. He does it as a man, but he also does it as God because he speaks to us by his Holy Spirit through the word of God working in our hearts and minds to turn the light bulb on. So you see, Jesus as a prophet, if he's not God and if he's not man, cannot be a true prophet to your soul. Same thing with Christ as priest. Same thing with Christ as king. Um, all right, so why does this matter? That, 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 by the way, was the biblical evidence. Why do we believe Jesus is one man, one person, two natures, fully God, fully man, united together, and yet forever distinct, mysterious, way too heavy, right? Why do we believe that? Why does that matter? Well, let's talk about why it matters. Why did Jesus go from being just God into this hypostatic union that made him God and man? The answer goes back to our need for salvation. The answer goes back to the covenant that God made with man in the garden. God created man, came to man, and established with man a covenant. A covenant of works. Adam, if you will obey me, you will live forever in paradise. Adam, if you disobey me, you will be cursed and will enter into a state of utter death. Adam, everything in the garden is yours, except for one tree. Adam, trust me, obey me, and paradise will be yours forever. I only give you one command. Don't eat of that one tree. Adam disobeyed. And all of humanity with him, with him we entered into a state of death. With him we entered into a state of separation from God. Jesus became a man to make this right. Jesus became a man to be the second Adam. Just as Adam represented the human race in his sin, Jesus came to represent the new human race in his obedience. Those who would inhabit the new heavens and the new earth. Those who would be made new by God's Spirit. Everyone who would ever believe on Jesus, everyone who would ever be born again and become a new creation, these were represented by Jesus as a real human being in his life. Adam was created sinless. Jesus came to earth as a sinless man. Adam had the possibility of sinning. 
Jesus had the possibility of sinning. Not in His divine nature can God sin. No. But as a real human being, Jesus really could sin. The devil wasn't doing something silly trying to tempt Jesus. He was really trying to get Jesus to sin so that your salvation and my salvation, which were on the line, would be lost. That our federal head, our representative, the one who was achieving perfection that would be accounted to us when we believe, if the devil could just get him to sin one time, gone. So you see, Jesus in his humanity was fully man seeking our salvation, seeking to pass the test that Adam failed. Adam's test of obedience, don't eat of the tree. Jesus' test of obedience was go to a tree and be crucified upon it. Live sinlessly for 33 years. Fulfill your Father's will. Be everything the Messiah is supposed to be. And then go to a cross and willingly lay your life down. Jesus' test was far more difficult than Adam's test. But Jesus obeyed and He obeyed for us. And therefore God raised Jesus from the dead, brought Him into the great reward for His obedience. Right? Had Adam obeyed in the garden, had Adam not sinned, he and all humanity would have lived in paradise forever. Now that Jesus has obeyed, and God has raised him up and ascended him to his throne, Jesus now lives in the blessing of God. Jesus now lives in the reward that he achieved. Right? As God, he already had all blessings. He already had all joy. He already had all authority and power. But now as a real human being, as one of us, He has actually lived a perfect life, laid down his life, fully accomplished the will of God, and God has given him an incredible reward so that he has all authority, all power, all blessing, all joy, not just as God, but now as one of us, as man. Now, we could never have that unless somehow we could be united to him. And that's what God has done. Through Jesus Christ, everything that he went through as a real human being was for our sake, so that when we are united to him by faith, we too enter into his reward. Ephesians 2, we are sitting with him at the right hand of God. We have been blessed in him with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Everything that Christ did as a human being, as a real human being, was for you and for me, so that when we believe on him, His righteousness could be accounted to us. Our sins could be forgiven. His grades on our report card, we get the blessing of God. That brings us back. John 1, 14. This is what is meant. We have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Um, That word dwelt, He dwelt among us, literally means to make a tent. He made a tent among us. It's actually the word tabernacle. He tabernacled among us. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle was where the special presence of God was. So the tabernacle was at the center of Israel's camp. So now Jesus was the tabernacle in this earth, fullness of God dwelling bodily. Tabernacle is now at the center of God's people. Jesus is at the center of God's people The tabernacle was the place of worship. Jesus is now the one to whom and through whom we worship. 
Jesus came as the ultimate sacrifice, the only way that we sinners can have true, glorious fellowship with God. He tabernacled among us, and in His perfect life and death, the glory of God was displayed. So, Jesus came as a man and accomplished all that He accomplished as a man in order to purchase salvation and all its blessings for those who will believe. And Jesus did not do this of His own accord. He did it because this was the will of His Father. The coming of Jesus Christ was the expression of God's purpose to be merciful to us. The man Jesus Christ is the greatest expression of God's grace ever given. When you read of Jesus in the Gospels, don't just see the love of Jesus. See the love of the Father in Jesus. See that Jesus is the expression of the Father's desire to be merciful to sinners like you and I. Why did Jesus come? He came that you and I would escape hell, enter heaven, and know the sweet fellowship with God that was lost by Adam in the garden. So, the miracle of the incarnation, the miracle of the hypostatic union, these took place to reveal to us the truth and grace of God towards sinners. God has every reason in the world to cast us into hell for our sins, but in His great love, He has chosen to do otherwise. And now through Jesus Christ, we can be saved. There is no other way. No other religion offers a mediator between God and man as Christianity does. Can you think of any other Messiah that can give you someone who is both fully God and fully man to bridge the gap, the infinite gap, between you and God. This is evidence of the glory of Christianity. This truth is at the center of Christianity. This is why the devil loves to attack this truth. It's why Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses and every other cult, when you get into this point of doctrine, they do not agree with the Bible. They lose the mediation of Jesus Christ. They lose the fullness of divinity and humanity in Jesus Christ. Because if the devil can take that away, the very doctrine of the gospel is lost. It is because of this that there is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. And so we close this way. What will you do with this man, Jesus Christ? What will you do with this God-man? Will you deny him? Will you suggest that because you can't wrap your minds around him, therefore he must not exist? Or will you humble yourself? Will you receive Christ as the most staggering gift of all? Will you rest upon what He has accomplished? Will you entrust your soul to this God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ? I pray that you will, and I pray that you will wonder at all that He is for our sakes. Let's pray.